Welcome back to the Drive with Dave podcast, where every month I get to chat with some of the most interesting people in the world. We talk exotic and classic cars, luxury travel, gear for men, and more. Every episode is filled with the fascinating insights of people leading extraordinary lives. Sometimes you meet people that have done so much in their lives that it's information overload. They've accomplished so much, lived so much, that you have to step back and let it all sink in. And that's my guest today. Introduced by our mutual mechanic, Kais, at South Bay Auto House, we were talking about the black Z8 Alpina in a shop, which inevitably led us to talking about the owner, a racing driver with an extraordinary on-track career. If you're a fan of motorsports, this is a podcast you won't want to miss. This morning, I'm with John Delane in Southern California, and the numbers simply blow me away. One driver, 106 tracks... 400 plus events, 21 plus countries, 34 years of counting. Does that sort of sum up your last three and a half decades, John? It does. And uh, as I sit back and think about it, it's just shocking even to me when you look at those numbers. It's an amazing opportunity to have done something essentially uh, not been replicated anywhere else by anyone else. And I have to say, uh, I feel incredibly fortunate to have been the one that got to enjoy it all. If my research is correct, your first race was Riverside in 1987. What do you remember that race, John? Uh, It was a real laugh. I borrowed my daughter's 16th birthday gift, which was a 1966 MGB. I want to belong to your family for that kind of birthday present. Yeah, it was a good one. And... uh, I'd warmed over the motor and put a roll bar in it and took it to racing school at Riverside. And uh, I did my first race in it against a a very good friend who was driving his wife's uh, Jag E-Type running on five cylinders. And he and I duked it out for last place. Did you pull a plug wire on that Jag? I wish I could take credit, but no, uh, I thanked his wife afterwards for ensuring that he didn't have all the ponies. So let's talk about your last race. The uh, last race was uh, probably uh, noteworthy for the exact opposite reason in that uh, we uh, went to the Daytona 24 Classic at uh, the Daytona Speedway, and there we uh, managed to pull off a first place win in my Chevron B21 and I did it single-handedly with no co-driver and won probably my biggest single race win in my career. How long is that race? Well it's a historic 24-hour race and so the cars are divided up in classes and groups by performance and so my class or group was for the cars built up until 1972 and my chevron's a 72 and uh, i have to say the format is well suited to the historic cars in that we do a 45 minute race every uh, six hours and we get to run at one in the afternoon at 7 p.m at 1 a.m and 7 a.m. and the accumulation of the 45-minute races is uh, the race 
and whoever finishes the most laps and uh, the fastest to finish the the uh, the four sessions is the winner. That sounds like a lot of coffee. Uh, well, I assure you, uh, those middle of the night stints are uh, are the hard ones. It's even hard for me uh, when you think about going racing at uh, seven p.m. So, John. Let me go back just a little bit. In fact, let's go way back. What were your earliest memories of cars? Were you interested in cars as a kid, or did that just come as you grew up? No, I've been interested in cars for a very, very long time. I can't remember a time when I wasn't. Uh, my granddaughter's kids' book that she did has pictures of me and uh, a pedal car early on, and uh, one of the other pictures has a uh, 49 Chevy convertible that I raced a good friend in his 51 Ford on an abandoned airport when I was 15 years old. So uh, I started early and was badly ruined early. And we found ourselves in uh, France uh, a couple of years later, and I got to stand on the pit straight wall and 10 feet from Sterling Moss and watched him jump in Rob Walker's uh, 250 short wheelbase. Ah, what a car. Ferrari. And after that day, it was a course set and never to be changed. So maybe not your first car, but your first sports car, your first thing that you really thought, I can zip around, what was it? Well, uh, I, uh, I have uh, pictures, too, of the 65 Mustang 289 two plus two that uh, I slalomed around the parking lot at the Hollywood Bowl. Autocross? On an autocross. Well, we call them slaloms, uh, don't you see? But uh, they're they're now more referred to as autocrosses. But uh, back then it was a slalom. And uh, someone picked up on video from it, and uh, Ford ended up borrowing it to do a commercial at one point because it's a rare opportunity to get to race in a place like that. So that really kicked it off for me. So somewhere you went from the uh, autocross slash slalom days to actually becoming involved in racing. So what did it take to get you actually at the, at the start line? Well, the, the best answer is uh, our oldest daughter, when she graduated high school, she uh, was given the uh, choice of a trip to Hawaii with her friends, a new wardrobe for college, or a trip to the Jim Russell Racing School at Riverside. And being the smart kid she is, uh, she chose racing school, and Dad was uh, her uh, race partner for the adventure. And so we spent three days thrashing around a riverside in Formula Fords, and she's never really uh, sat in a race car other than mine on occasion since. And the bug really took hold that day, and uh, I had to start racing uh, very shortly thereafter. If you think back to those days, was it kind of dipping a toe in the water, or was it just jumping in the deep end? I think it was deep end. Um, I mean, we went from driving the Mustang around the uh, Hollywood Bowl parking lot to racing uh, an MGB on the big track at Riverside in a relatively short period of time. And uh, I was late in life to, to start. You know, the, the good drivers, the people that really want to make a, a living at it, know they have to start way early in order to have the skills. So 
uh, I was a late starter, but the difficulty is that once you're hooked, uh, I find it's got to be worse than uh, drugs because uh, I can't quit and I refuse to grow up. You know, you sound like so many of friends and acquaintances that I have, John, that are, they've never touched a drug. They don't drink to excess. And yet when it comes to road racing and motorsports, when they hear that engine, when there's a start finish line, they are there. Uh, all you got to do is give me uh, any opportunity to uh, find my way to a racetrack and particularly uh, to take the cars that I've been able to drive over the years and some of these events. It's just mind-blowing. Uh, I never in my wildest imagination thought I'd get to go back to Le Mans and race on that same track where I watched Sterling Moss race. And yet, uh, I've done that. Uh, I can say I've been there and done that. And I'd say the same about uh, going back to Monza, where I saw the Tyrrell for the very first time. I've now gotten to go back to Monza and race in the Formula One cars in that very same Tyrrell at Monza. And I'm doubly fortunate in that that day, I got to race with my son in the other Tyrrell. And um, that is sort of life experience that I don't think anybody can even imagine. So, John, you opened the door, and we're going to talk a little bit about cars, the racing cars that you own or have owned or have driven. And, of course, I think the big gun here is everybody's wild about Formula One, just wild about it, the noise, the sounds, the history, the heritage of the Formula One sport itself. But you have been fortunate, as you said, to drive a great, tremendous Formula One car. Tell me about that. Well, the Tyrrell cars are, um, I think, a special brand. They existed as a brand for about 30 years. Ken Tyrrell was an early entrant into the uh, Formula One arena. He came in uh, in 68 and brought Jackie Stewart with him. And they uh, started with a chassis from the French aircraft manufacturer, Matra, and got Ford to supply their motors, and uh, he had Jackie on contract, and uh, they started and won the world championship in 69. And at the end of 69, after winning the championship, Matra announced they weren't going to renew because uh, they wanted to use their Matra motors in the car, and Ken Tyrrell knew they were not going to be winners. He was wedded to Ford, so he decided he had to build his own cars, and so he built his first Tyrrell. And uh, the first Tyrrell came to its first race in 1970 at the Italian Grand Prix at Monza, and it happens to be the very first race, Formula One race, that my wife Mimi and I got to go to, and we watched Jackie Stewart there in Tyrrell 001. Lo, those many years later, we'd get to know the Tyrrell family, and they would loan me 001 for 10 years, and I was able to buy Tyrrell 002 uh, and later Tyrrell 006, and eventually acquired the Tyrrell Transporter. Those cars all got transported around the world in, and so uh, I have become single-handedly the only person outside of Jackie Stewart 
to have ever gotten to drive uh, three of the first six Tyrrells built, two of which were used to win world championships. Now, of course, you have, you told me that you have met Jackie Stewart. Uh, I know Jackie quite well, and of course the cars were the introduction. Jackie has driven my cars on many an occasion, and he is probably the guy that I can credit for having given me the best driving lessons uh, any human could ever ask for. Tell me about those. Well, Jackie is uh, known, I think, worldwide as being not only very fast, but smooth. And uh, his driving style was just amazing. They made uh, TV commercials and movies about it. The guy was just incredible. And my driving style is inherently the exact opposite. I'm erratic. Uh, I tend to saw at the wheel. And unless you've heard the Scotsman uh, chide you for needing to give the car a Valium because it's I'm overexciting the car and I need to smooth out my driving. And I have to say, uh, how lucky am I? to have uh, Jackie Stewart be my driving instructor. I'm going to go back again, and let's talk about some of those first races. So let's put that high point, of course, with the Tyrrells and Formula One cars, but you've had some other cars in between this too, and you've had a lot of interesting races in 100-plus racetracks around the world. Tell me some of the other exciting cars that you've driven, you've owned, you've raced, what made them special, what made the events special that you went to. Well, I think the the other car that is uh, really special to me is the exact opposite end of the spectrum from the big, powerful Tyrrell Formula One cars, and that's my Formula Junior, my little Lotus 18. Lotus built three versions of their open-wheel, single-seat Model 18s from a little 120-horsepower Formula Junior, which was the training ground car for the racing drivers in the, in the period, to a Formula 2 version up to the Formula 1 version. And the Formula One version is what Sterling Moss used to win Monaco in 1960 and 61. The Formula Junior 18 is one of my favorite cars because it is the car that has taken me to FIA championships. It's taking me to over 50 of the tracks that I've raced on around the world. And it is the car that uh, is probably among the most challenging to drive because it has very little power. It has a, a Renault gearbox that is problematic. It has four-inch wide tires and wheels and drum brakes, and yet it can be incredibly fast, and I have enjoyed racing it from New Zealand to Eastern Europe, to uh, all across the U.S., and it is what I'd consider to be the most satisfying car to drive and drive well because of its limitations. Now, more fun, less fun than the Chevron? And there is an unanswerable question <laughs> because they all have their challenges. They all have their 
pluses and minuses. Uh, my current ride is uh, a 72 Chevron B21, which has a two liter Ford BDG engine. Fuel injection makes uh, 280 horsepower and it's incredibly fast but it is got its own challenges in that it has almost no aerodynamic aids and yet a car that can go nearly as fast as the uh, three liter formula one Tyrrells. amazing it is and uh, a car that i have recently raced a lot it's a car that was built not so much for sprint races, but for longer races. And it's a car with a tremendous history and a car that is, uh, like the Tyrrells, very recognizable in that our good friend Ed Swart, who lives uh, nearby, was one of the original drivers. And Ed raced for the Canon camera sponsorship and raced uh, all over the world uh, in the Chevron before uh, this one became mine. So. so all those decades back, well, not all, I'm, I'm not aging you here, but 30-some years ago, has racing changed at whatever at whatever level you do has has motorsports changed over all these years i think the change uh, is more about how different it is place to place because i now have a frame of reference that i've gained over the 30 years uh, i started out racing on the tracks of southern california and a couple up in northern california and then slowly expanded. And as I expanded, I learned how different racing is as you go out of the U.S. and even in different parts of the U.S. And my first race in Europe, ironically, was on the Nordschleife at the Nürburgring. That's a nasty gal. And I assure you, I found that out in, in short order. And the next one was in the Tyrrell, the Formula One car, around Monaco in the rain. And, <laughs> and I went never having driven any race car in the wet ever. So this death wish that you're talking about. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a challenge. I remember running into Danny Sullivan, the uh, Indy 500 winner. And uh, Danny was actually a Team Tyrrell driver back in the early days. And I got to Danny uh, on the morning before we were due to go out in the wet. And I said, Danny, I need some hints about, about driving here. And uh, he knew what I was driving, uh, Tyrrell in the, in the wet. And he said, well, you need hints on Monaco. And I said, no, I've, I've never driven a race car in the wet. And he had the biggest eyes. <laughs> Welcome to reality, kid. Yeah, that's exactly it. But uh, we survived that. And we've survived 106 tracks in 21 countries. And uh, I have to say, racing is different uh, everywhere we go. And the growth in each new track brings me to another reality of how those differences are. Vintage racing in England and Europe is much more aggressive than we ever see in the U.S., People don't think uh, at all about, you know, bumping you out of the way, out of uh, 
you know, having incidents of contact which are heavily frowned upon in the states, but very common and uh, almost the norm when you go out of the states. And why do you why do you suppose? Why do you think that's different? Why does that occur? I think it's the level of competitiveness, but I really chalk it up to the fact that out of the U.S., the racing is heavily laden with awards for performance. In the States, there are some vintage racing groups that have awards. Um, I have a collection of watches that I've won racing in the States. But um, you go out of the States and you find a trophy presentation is the norm. And people value those results and they will vie for that last square inch of pavement and uh, that last position and that last tick of the clock to get a qualifying spot, and it is ultra-competitive. So is this cultural? And I guess what I mean is you've been, and we'll talk about some of the places you've been in the world and how thick your passport (laughs) stamps must be, but do you feel that's cultural? Is it one of those kinds of things like the Brits or the Germans or the French or the Italians are are so competitive that they're literally doing the very best they can to do whatever they can to finish to finish that race. I think it is, um, but we've raced in New Zealand, and the Kiwis are very competitive as well. Uh, and when they come to Europe, they fit right in, <laughs> uh, and and so the that level of competition is is elsewhere. We've raced the streets of Singapore doing a support race for the Singapore Grand Prix. And while most of the participants were the Europeans, the Brits, and the few Americans that participate in the historic Formula One group, um, it is it was a pretty competitive event, and there was no holds barred. And... Uh, there were people that bent cars and... Uh, so expensive cars. Very expensive cars, yeah. And uh, I think the reality is that it's more of an attitude out of the U.S. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't hyper-competitive racing in the U.S., but it's a lot fewer and further between. You know, when we first talked when I first met you and you had mentioned that you had raced in 30 plus countries and the people that I know that that have been um, to 30 plus countries are other criminals facing deportation or I guess you so what in the world tell me why you suddenly decide nobody wakes up in the morning and says I've got I've got to race 34 countries I have to race every track in the world, 106 countries, I believe it is now. How did that come to your mind that you said, I wanted to do this? Was it one after the other? Did you set your sight on a number and then just keep blowing by it? What happened? I think less a case of setting an objective to uh, the circumstance and what I'd call fortuitous, I guess, luxury of having been able to acquire the cars that lend themselves to being used in all of these different places. 
my invitations to take my Tyrrells to places that I never dreamed I would get invitations for have been amazing. And to a large degree, that goes to the point of meeting the likes of Jackie Stewart. The cars have been the introduction, and the fact that I discovered relatively early on that, yes, it's not that hard to go to Mont Tremblant in Canada to race if you're going to be able to race at Laguna Seca, going to Mont is just a logistics challenge. And uh, the same is true if you want to race at Silverstone or the Nordschleife or at Monaco. And the really rare treats are getting to do the support races for the Formula One races around the world because then it's, the again, the car that gets the invite to take and go to these places. And I feel so very fortunate to have had the car relatively early in my racing career, and the invites have been the trigger to getting to do it. That must be a real thrill. I didn't know that you'd done this. The, uh, the real thrill of being the appetizer to a Formula One race where you have that Formula One crowd there. You have that tremendous energy. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, I think that's the thing that is the amazing uh, outcome that you don't think about when you think about driving old cars. But the cars are still very, very much appreciated by race fans around the world. And the Formula One people, and, and I'll give Bernie Eccleston credit for it early on, and that Bernie, when he was running Formula One, saw that it was an attractive addition to the dance card for a race weekend. And so Bernie single-handedly made sure that, for instance, when they ran the first Bahrain Grand Prix, we had an invite to go and do a support race at Bahrain. And I found myself with a free airplane ticket, transport for my race car, the uh, support paddock to our use, and Jackie Stewart introducing me to the Crown Prince of Bahrain, who personally asked what he could do to make my visit more enjoyable. Now, this is where I mentioned that my wife, Laura, and I are desperate to be part of your crew. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's part of what you have, but, you know, the examples of going to the first U.S. Grand Prix at Austin, Texas at Coda, where they had, you know, 150,000 people and getting to race in front of 150,000 people who admittedly aren't there to see us, but happy to see us as part of their ticket price is, it's unbelievably special. I came around a corner at the Canadian Grand Prix on the uh, Ile-Gilles-Villeneuve in Montreal and looked at packed grandstands in the middle of our support race for the Canadian Grand Prix one year, and I thought, it does not get much better. I, 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 can, I can well understand that. I, I've, missing the thrill, I will never experience the thrill, but that's got to be great. It is, and, and, and truthfully, I go back to the fact that the cars are the entree. No offense to my MGB that I first started with, 
but uh, generally you don't draw much of a crowd to watch an MGB race. Uh, compared to a Tyrrell, no. Uh, compared to a Tyrrell. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I have loved the fact that I've gotten to race them all over the world. So, John, of course, you mentioned um, Jackie Stewart, uh, one of the biggest names ever in the history of motorsports and Formula One. But you've met other people along the way, too. Tell me about some other people that have influenced you either personally or professionally when it comes to driving. I think the, uh, if you don't mind, a slight divergence. Uh, Diverge. Uh, probably the most fun in that regard of meeting uh, famous drivers is uh, an, an early invite for my Tyrrell to the Goodwood Festival of Speed led me to find myself in the uh, men's changing room at Lord March's estate at Goodwood. And in the changing room, you get to stand around in your underwear with all of your heroes <laughs> because they're all there. Because Lord March, now it's uh, the Duke, has done an incredible job at bringing all of these famous drivers in for these events and he furnishes the famous cars for them to demonstrate and you you cannot imagine standing in your underwear and looking around and finding the people that you have idolized you know forever and they're there doing the same great fun thing you're getting to do and in a circumstance where people are just people and you can talk and visit and no one minds sharing an experience and whatnot. Needless to say, there wasn't much photography going on in there, but uh, it was perfect. And it's an example of how I've gotten to meet uh, all of my heroes. And I think probably the biggest laugh is one of my one of my favorites is a young fellow who has gone through some hard times, Al Unser Jr. of all places. And he lives close by. Uh, he lives in Albuquerque. He's an Albuquerque mm -hmm. uh, guy. And Al was at Goodwood at the Festival of Speed one year, and I ended up getting to meet him in the changing room. And I had the strangest thing happen in that we put our race suits on to go to the, the assembly area to get in our respective cars. And I ended up coming out just behind uh, little Al, and no one at the uh, at the uh, the autograph seekers that cluster around the exit from the uh, where the driver's changing area is recognize little Al, but I was stopped by three different people asking for my autograph, and uh, I have to say it was days like that that I just stopped myself and say, wow, I got to meet my heroes because little Al is definitely one of them. And yet I got to be one of the celebrities at the same time. And uh, you have to say, as fantasy experiences go, pretty hard to beat. Right up there, right? Yeah. John, another quick question. You have been all over the world, and you've, you've obviously been on both ends. You've been a spectator. You've sat in the stands. You've moved around, whether it's Le Mans, Monaco, Historics, whatever it is. 
there has to be some things that you have thought about over the years, your racing career, or even as a young person, a teenager. What are some of the don't miss events that you feel that people should go to that maybe, maybe I've never gone to, maybe our listeners never gone to? If you could think about some great events that you've been to, where would you tell people to go? Give me a couple. Well, I think the uh, old school ones for me are the simplest and and the best. Uh, no one will ever beat the Monaco experience, and and I don't care if you give a hoot about racing or not. Going to Monaco to see either the Grand Prix or the historic Grand Prix is, in my opinion something that is just uh, unbeatable and uh, it single-handedly pretty much makes everything else look second best. The The way they do things and particularly for the historic event is phenomenal. Tell me about that. Um, they treat the drivers, the participants, as though they are uh, the absolute personal guests of the prince. And we get a, a level of care and feeding in order to be able to feed our uh, enjoyment of the cars in, in a way that is just incomparable. And while they charge a princely sum for the experience, it is an opportunity for anybody that's going to be right in there. You can actually get into the paddock as a spectator. You can get right up close to the action. You can uh, go to the awards ceremony, which is held in the sporting club where uh, they roll the roof back and do a fireworks show at the conclusion of the prize giving. You can dance with the prince on the dance floor. I probably wouldn't. The, uh, well, I mean, the point is you can dance with your significant other on the floor with the prince. It is a life experience that I don't care what you do. Make that stop and figure out how to do it. Uh, that would be number one. Number two. Uh, number two's a lot harder. Um, I can't hardly get past the Duke's two big events, the uh, Festival of Speed and the uh, Revival, uh, are very close seconds. At, at Goodwood. Uh, at Goodwood. Uh, I'm sorry, yes. And they are completely different events. I laugh that going to the Festival of Speed as a participant means that you're going to get somewhere in the vicinity of 14 to 16 seconds worth of track time per run. How many runs? And and uh, take it back, there are about 55 seconds worth of track time. And we get uh, two runs a day for three days. So when you think about all that uh, falderall effort and whatnot, driving up Lord March's driveway uh, doesn't take all that long. But the the point is that whether you're participating or spectating or participating in the process, because there too you can buy tickets and and go to his. Uh, 
He has a fantastic party he puts on Saturday night for uh, the sponsors and uh, participants and certain others that he allows to buy tickets for. The revival's the same way, except the difference with the revival is that you get to play dress-up the whole time. Uh Uh-huh. And it is an experience that if vintage racing is an end-all, be-all, doing vintage racing at the Revival is the end-all, be-all. Because racing at Monaco is an ultimate objective, but racing at the Revival is in a completely different category because of the costumes, because of the, the way the show gets run. And uh, I think it's, a, it's an easy uh, second. The, the Festival of Speed is just an amazing, amazing event. And it's something that you get to see the people and the cars. I mean, uh, the advantage to the festival is you get to see all the modern Formula One cars up close. I mean, you can, you know, uh, walk right up and go down to the assembly area and see all the drivers uh, there. And, you know, you can get up close and see, you know, all of it. And so they all have their, their pluses. Last week we were at lunch and we were talking back and forth. And I, I asked you a question that I, I often ask when I'm interviewing someone, but in your uh, experience with race cars, of course, I make it a little bit differently. And my question would be, somebody's going to listen to this or they're going to want to get into motorsports, no matter if it's going to be at a young age or an older guy. So he or she sits down and says, I'm really interested in doing this, but I, I, I don't know how to take the first step. I'm confused about maybe the cost. Is it going to be something that I'm going to die behind the wheel? So if you had a young guy or girl and you're sitting around or an older person and they're saying, John, I'd love to try road racing. I'd love to try motorsports. Where would you direct them? How would you tell them to get involved? Well, I, I think a lot depends on how uh, serious they are about pursuing the sport. Uh, in other words, if they really want to get into it with it, an eye towards it being something that they really want to do a lot of and they, they want to be competitive at and they want to entertain more modern vehicles, then I'd, I'd answer uh, a completely different path. If they're more interested in older cars and race... Historic? In historic-type uh, cars, uh, then uh, I think a completely different approach uh, would be in order because racing modern cars is a very, very wide cross-section of options and the depth of your pocketbook is the the real linchpin to even beginning to consider that because modern car racing is a great deal more expensive because you can use up cars much more quickly. Uh, Can you get hurt? You get hurt in all of them. I have to say I don't think there's an easy answer as to how to to deal with that. Uh, I think that 
the, the professionals will tell you, don't race old cars because they're too dangerous. I mean, I literally have seen professional drivers, guys that were fearless, say they wouldn't get in my race car because they were frightened silly uh, of it and it was entirely too too dangerous. So uh, that, that side of it is something everybody has to weigh. Uh, to get into historic racing, really uh, easy to approach that. It's all down to how much money you want to spend. Uh, you need to figure out uh, where to go to school and take some lessons on how to, to get your driving skills honed. And uh, there are lots of ways to do that. Uh, my two grandsons just got their historic racing licenses uh, a few weeks ago when they went to their second race school and came out of the schools with their vintage racing. Where'd they go to school, John? The school was run by the local uh, vintage racing club, Vintage Auto Racing Association, and it's VARA that I started racing with back in 87. And uh, VARA put on a, an annual school that takes place up at Button Willow Raceway up in, uh, in the Central Valley. And uh, the school is the perfect starting point because you can either bring a road car or a race car. You can take the two-day school, and um, at the end of the two-day school, they hand you a, uh, a license and you're now good to be able to enroll in and, and, and join races with virtually any vintage racing group in the, in the country. And there are dozens of them, and you can bring just about any car you want to race and uh, go race. I'm, I'm going with a, a friend who has made the step as well, and he is, uh, I think, a year older than I am. And he's going to, uh, he got his license with my two grandsons. And we're going up on Monday to look at a race car that he wants to buy. And I'll expect to see him racing at Laguna Seca uh, in the middle of March. So, you know, it's not complicated. And it's easy enough to do, depending upon, again, how much you want to do it, then where you take the car, how you're going to get the car to those tracks and whatnot is all part of the logistics. And those are all easily solvable problems. My friend, for instance, doesn't want to have to buy a trailer and tow it and worry about you know, storage, putting the air in the tires and gas in the tank. So he'll probably do what I've done, which is to hire a company that does this for their business. And they'll prep the car, they'll bring it to the track. All he has to do is enter the race and show up with his race gear, his helmet, shoes, and gloves, and be uh, able to jump in the car and participate in the race and get the experience firsthand. He's going to be at Laguna probably. So to wrap this up, at least this session, I think what you're saying is it's easy to get into road racing and it's a little tougher to win. Well, winning is winning's a, a whole separate category. Uh, there are people that start and find they have an aptitude and they can 
have acquired the right car to race in the right group, and they can they can win some races. But the race that my friend's going to go to up at Laguna Seca is with a, another vintage group, and they don't even keep score. Um, like my golfing buddies. I'm, I'm sure very similar. There's no uh, race times. There's no grid order. There's no starting order. There's no finishing score. Uh, it's all about just going out and having fun and getting a chance to mix it up out on the track with like-minded people. You know, John, it's been an interesting <clears throat> five minutes with you. At least it feels like five minutes, and I could do this with you all day long. One of the things that I really want to make sure of is what's left to do. I'm hoping that I can convince you to come back on because I've got lots of questions about things we've talked about in the past, things like logistics. So if you have a car and you decide you want to go to Europe, number one, getting your car there, number two, getting you there, and then, of course, number three, where do you stay, where do you eat, where do you go? And you are probably one of the most traveled people that I think we know, uh, and I, I intend to spend a little bit of time and maybe a little bit more than just a little bit of time picking your brain on that stuff, whether it will be in a podcast or in a post. I sincerely hope we, uh, we can get you back on, on air and talk about some of the great places that you think you know all about that might be a secret to everybody else. So John Delane, Southern California, I want to thank you very much for your time this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I really look forward to doing more of this with you, John. Thanks. That's been great fun, Dave. Thanks for joining me today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and head over to drivewithdave.com where you can join our newsletter and follow us on social media. I'll be back soon with more insights about people, places, and the luxury lifestyle, all with the goal of adding to your extraordinary life. <music>